Ohio. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hello everyone, and welcome to a History of Egypt podcast mini-episode. This is part two of our look at music, and it is an interview with a composer named Jeffrey Goodman. Jeffrey is a composer primarily for the classical guitar, but he has prepared one album and a number of other songs, evoking the world of ancient Egypt. In order to get a better understanding of things like ancient instruments that have been reconstructed in the modern era... I asked Jeffrey to join me for an interview in order to discuss his approach to evoking that ancient world. Along the way, we discuss things like the scales that the Egyptians might have used, the various instruments which we have recovered, and what those indicate about their compositions. Now, the music of the past is gone, and since the ancient Egyptians have not left any surviving notation or rhythms, we're unable to reconstruct the melodies that they did play. But we're not totally in the dark. Because ancient instruments have survived, these can be studied and copied, and by looking at replicas of those instruments, we can at least get a very basic understanding of what the instruments were capable of and what sounds they made. From this, we can do some attempts at reconstruction, and Jeffrey Goodman has approached this much more carefully than many others. So, Sit back and enjoy a short interview with Jeffrey Goodman, composer, and a number of songs which he has prepared evoking the ancient world of Egypt. This interview has been edited for time and content, and I've also re-recorded my questions in between. So first of all, I should say hello, Jeffrey, and thank you for joining the show. You're most welcome. I appreciate the invitation. In order to reconstruct or evoke the ancient world, how do you approach your composition? Do you start with the instruments or a particular melody that you want to evoke? What's the start of your compositional process? That's a very remarkable process for me. I don't know, I don't know if the word process is quite right, because a composition can start anywhere and go anywhere or go nowhere. So what happens with me is that there is a literally a a moment that can be less than one second where I may see an image or may hear something, and that's the seed of a whole composition or a number of them. Visually, for some reason, I'm very, very reactive to those things. So when you go into, for instance, a Baroque cathedral, the architecture is in its own way, has a resonance to Baroque music. And so there's an experience in space that uh, a composer like Bach, when he was composing, 
his music, his religious music in particular, was not imitating it, but was of a, fa a cultural and artistic and fabric of consciousness that had a kind of a union with that. So for me, when I look at these images, I start to see, have this sense of there's a musical form. I had a very nice time looking at all the different illustrations of harp. They're wonderful, those beautiful images of ladies, some of my favorite images, where there, I think three ladies walking and they're in wonderful um, postures and one may be holding an old lyre or a flute, a sistrum and so forth. Certain, so the pieces that I play, although you can't see uh, a hieroglyphic tablet or one of these great images, but there are certain elements of, of space and repetition that are non-Western, they're non-European, but they are something that um, makes sense in terms of musical form as we see it today. So for a composer hoping to bring the ancient world to life in a specifically musical context, one of the things that they can look at is the artwork of the culture itself, then the instruments that that culture has left behind. And by holistically interpreting those two things, along with some fundamental understanding of scales and rhythm, a composer like Jeff Goodman can at the very least give a basic sound for ancient Egypt. It might not be the sound that the ancients themselves made, but it's as close as we can reasonably hope to achieve in the modern world with, you know, three millennia separating us from their rhythms. With that in mind, I'm going to start playing some of Jeffrey's music. This will be interspersed throughout the episode, and I think you'll be able to hear for yourself the wonderful attempts he's made to evoke an authentic and evocative piece of ancient Egyptian music. So, of course, ancient Egypt is not the only culture to have made music. What kind of information can we glean from other societies or cultures that might give us an idea of the Egyptian sounds? Uh, interestingly, every culture, everyone has music. And in music, there are very different scales that are used in different cultures. But all music has the octave and the perfect fifth. And that's because when you when you hit something, if you hit a string or a pipe, it'll have its fundamental frequency. And then at twice that frequency, there is an overtone that everyone hears. Everyone hears the first several overtones. So all cultures, all musical cultures have that. After that, all bets are off. The classical Indian music may have a minimum of 31 tones to the octave. 
we have a chromatic scale of 12 tones to the octave, at least on the piano. And so in order to do anything with Egyptian, the idea of Egyptian music, I was thinking about it for a long time. And I thought the very best indicator of at least something would be flutes, because the flutes that have the holes, you can play those holes. And at least for that time in that place, you can find a scale of some kind that that corresponds to. And, and as I was first starting I, on this, I said to my wife, I said, you know, I don't know why, but I think the Aeolian pentatonic is the scale that maybe they used in ancient Egypt. And about two months later, I read an article that said they found a flute and it was an Aeolian pentatonic scale. For the benefit of my listeners, what is an Aeolian pentatonic scale? Okay, so if you think of a minor scale, most European scales are called diatonic scales, and that's a seven-note scale. Pentatonic means five, and pentatonic is extremely widespread. Japanese and Chinese scales are often that. So some of my early pieces were focused on the intervals and the relationships that you could get with a pentatonic scale. Okay, so the basic starting point is the scale and what we can evoke from that particular with the restrictions that we are aware of. How do you apply that to the instruments that we know the ancient Egyptians had? But I, I think, I suppose the most important starting point, which is very liberating in some sense, and also very constraining at the same time, is that there is no surviving music notation from ancient Egypt. Uh, written evidence would be, of course, tremendously welcome. So the, the scales are very important. And so, so flutes, flutes are really good. And so many of the drawings are very realistic. They're not just cartoonish. So what I would do is, of course, I would count the strings if there's 18 strings. And just using, just using graphics, if you, take, if you take a certain note, let's say the string is this tall and you measure it as 12 inches or a subset proportion of that, and I find that string, which is half that length, that is at least metaphorically the octave. So if that's the case, and I did this with a bunch of harps, some of them are full length like orchestral harps, a lot of them are handheld harps, so they're all different pitch ranges, but a lot of them are about, uh, let's just say about 18 notes, and that often is like an octave and a half. So that would give me a pitch range that has a limited number of strings, but in on my computer and with my keyboards, I'm not going to write a part like Ravel or Debussy that goes sweeping three octaves up because that wouldn't have existed. So when you ask about is the music, am I thinking about historic with the caveat that there's no, there's no evidence as to text, still some ideas of scale and some ideas of instrument range can be there. That makes sense. So even if we don't have some form of ancient notation, we can still look at the instruments, their physical form, at least as far as they're reconstructed. And from that, we can get a sense of what that instrument is actually capable of in terms of sound.
So the piece that we just heard was complex, with horns, percussion in low and high sounds, uh, flutes and reed instruments. How did that kind of orchestral sound come together? The other thing that's, that I didn't know until I started this is that in, ancient, in the ancient Egypt and the span of it, every instrumental group that's in a Western orchestra existed in, in, the, in instruments of that time. Of course, there's a huge range of percussion, but there were flute-like instruments. There were, there were reed instruments like oboes or like clarinets. There were stringed instruments like harps and lyres and uh, percussion, and there were also kind of brass type of instruments. So there's a lot, there's a lot there to choose from. One type is, a, is called a double reed. It's still used in some places. Now, normally, what that suggests musically to me is that one reed was probably just a single note, like a low note that was used as a drone on the bottom and that they would then vary the notes above that. There's a partic- particularly famous tomb painting with a woman playing a double reed of some sort. Yeah, so one person's playing, kind of like in a bagpipe, you have some certain notes that you just have droning and then the, the little pipes are putting a melody above that. So by looking at the physical form of an ancient flute, a composer can get a sense of how it might have been played. And when you couple that with artistic representations, like we saw in the recent mini-episode, you get a greater understanding of the sort of rhythms or melodies that might have been played on these particular instruments. Here's an example of how Jeff brings that to life. You mentioned the span of ancient Egyptian history. Of course, we're talking about millennia, you know, vast timescales. How would that affect your approach to evoking their music? When you say ancient Egyptian, you're talking about thousands of years. And so it's not a unitary, it's, it, it is by its nature not something unitary, that there was no uniformity. In, in European culture, just the note A was not standardized to 440 cycles per second until late in the 19th century. So when Bach, when Bach was performing music in different cities, he had to know that if it was a cantata, like a sacred composition with the, with the town organ, he had to know what the pitch of that organ was. And sometimes it was a half step higher or lower. And we know that he knew that because when he wrote out the musical parts, he would take his original and he would transpose it so the musicians could play with the organ. So this is, this is recent, very recent. And there are many, many aspects of that. What are the sort of traps that you think might catch a composer who's looking to evoke the ancient world? You know, what, what sort of things do you need to avoid when you're doing this? Part of what's important to me from the historic point of view, is to not do certain things. There are a lot of choices that that are the absence of certain kinds of things. Instruments that weren't at all at that time. I wish I could have uh, my Stradivarius violin and my and my oboe and my English horn because I can put that in my other music. But I can't I can't use those in these pieces. And see, these limits are actually positive 
things from a composing standpoint because when you have no scores of pieces it's entirely just a point of imagination but you have to delimit it you have to do it that way so one of the great challenges in approaching ancient music is what you can't put in and this is a trap that i've found many composers do stumble into In their quest to create a piece that is both authentic but also entertaining and engaging for the modern ear, the temptation sometimes seems to be quite strong to include instruments that are anachronistic or could not possibly have existed in the ancient world. Most of the time this isn't really a problem because you're listening to the music to enjoy it, but if you're trying to get an understanding of ancient melody by a modern reconstruction, Things like that can be real barriers to full appreciation of what the ancients were working with. Jeffrey has also composed a number of variations on what might be called different hymns. In the next piece, we're going to hear a wonderful interpretation of how a priesthood in a temple might have approached the worship of two different gods. In this case, we're talking about a song dedicated to the royal god Horus and the fearsome lioness Sarkmet. This is Jeff Goodman's War Song. Thank you. 
I love that piece. I just think it's really great fun and a really wonderful sound of how a priesthood might have approached a hymn to particularly fearsome and powerful gods. Jeffrey's composed a number of compositions on varying themes from Egyptian mythology and religious life in particular. As we saw in the recent mini-episode, music in ancient Egypt fundamentally had a divine character. There were gods who had given order to the universe through the playing of melodies and rhythms. So naturally, a composer like Jeffrey, who strives for some degree of authenticity, has gone to the well of mythology repeatedly in order to draw different compositions out. Now, you've made one album of Egyptian evocative music, if you will. Do you plan to revisit those particular sounds, or do you think you're done? I'm I'm just in the midst of, uh, I'm doing a complete new, working on a triptych. There'll be three pieces together that um, one of the pieces, the piece that I've just virtually completed, it's not fully mastered, is uh, the lamentation of Isis and her sister. How, how would you pronounce the sister's name? Nephthys? I say, I say Nephthys. Nephthys, yeah. I see different spellings, and I would really not want to appear in front of her and mispronounce her name. So in this one, there's a singer on the left speaker who is Isis, and the singer on the right speaker who is Nephthys, and they each have um, an expression of lamentation about the death of Osiris. And then at the end, they're going to be singing a kind of a duet or doing a duet. But then there will also be a first piece that will depict the death of um, the murder of Osiris by Seth. And then uh, the third one is resurrection. So murder, lament, lamentation, resurrection is an awfully <laughs> intriguing set of things. It's something that's that I'm I've just been obsessed by it. And and I now have the I have the musical tools in my in my studio that I think that I, I couldn't have done this a few years ago, but now I have tools that allow me to, to do those things. And one of the great things that I have in my, in my library, and some real geniuses have been able to, you have a choir and instead of singing O or A ah or E, you can actually put in a phonetic text and have them sing it. So I can have in my first album, I had, there was a war song of um, Horus and Sekhmet. And so when you hear that, these are, these are who knows how they're actually pronounced, I certainly wouldn't. But you're hearing a choir not singing la and ah, but they're singing whatever the phonetic texts I could get. Um, they're singing phrases that, are, that relate to the ancient texts. So, quite wonderfully, Jeffrey has now tackled the mythological death of Osiris and the aftermath. There is a famous written record of the lament of Isis and Nephthys on the death of their brother slash lover slash husband Osiris. This survives from the New Kingdom, particularly things like the Book of the Dead, and Geoffrey has used that text to great effect. So, we're now going to listen to an excerpt of the lament of Isis and Nephthys on the death of Osiris.
What a lovely piece. I find it very evocative and really enjoyable to listen to. That brings us to the end of the formal interview, the discussion of ancient Egyptian music and how it is evoked in the modern day. But stick around for a few more minutes, because Jeffrey and I now had a bit of a chit-chat about his career, which spans decades, and there are some really wonderful anecdotes about working in music around the world, and it's just a really interesting discussion all round. So if you're just here for the Egyptian music, this is where you can hop off. But stick around, and I think you'll really enjoy the chat. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, you mentioned you mentioned earlier that you are a classical guitarist, primarily. How did you how did you develop into that, and what what led you down that path in particular? Just as a, a teenager. Uh, my, my brother and sisters played musical instruments and I was never interested in any instrument until uh, I wasn't interested to play the piano or the violin. But one day I heard a recording that was in my parents' collection of uh, Andre Segovia playing guitar. And, and then I knew I wanted to play that. So it was just an instant connection to that. And that just, to my surprise or not with any expectation that developed, that continued to develop over um, to this day, really. And I've been very, I was very fortunate. I spent quite a few years uh, teaching classical guitar at UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles, and um, have been guest professor in other places, um, had wonderful experiences in performing around the world also for some soundtracks and things for movies because in los angeles there's things like that that occur so so the guitar was, has always been and still is a very central part of my music um you mentioned you mentioned earlier that you ran music festivals in vienna for a few years what does that look like what does that experience entail Broadly speaking, how do you how do you run a music festival? <laughs> that and in, that involves uh, having a good supply of um, aspirin and Tylenol. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Coincidentally, that's how podcasting works too. <laughs> uh, I was I was a young faculty member at UCLA, and with the platform of of the school, uh, I reached out and um, was able to find some music promoters in Vienna who put together fantastic festivals at the Vienna Conservatory. We did concerts at the American Embassy. I played a solo concert in what's called Palais Palfi, which is a place where Mozart had performed when he was there. And um, 
there were wonderful experiences. So we had students, we brought a group of students uh, from UCLA, and then we met with uh, mostly Austrian musicians, some Hungarian musicians, and um, we had concerts and various events. And it was really, really great things to do, very, very difficult things. And, and in those days, it was all done with letters. So I would write a letter and every, there was nothing that that happened in less than two or three weeks. <laughs> so there were long letters, but there were, I was dealing with people on the other side of the, um, of the ocean that were competent and reliable people, fortunately. So, um, so that's, you know, that's how that came about. Today, of course, it's very different. You know, I can fire you an email and within 20 seconds it's arrived at your, your computer and we can communicate directly, instantaneously, just through the medium of the internet. It's quite wonderful. Oh, completely. And the internet and music are so perfectly adapted one to the other that now I have a minimum of 20,000 people per month that are looking at my, just my YouTube channel and it's been listened to more than 24 hours a day, somewhere, all across the world. And it's, it's not live, but, it's, but it is really remarkable. And then that's allowed me to discover in the last few years how alive music is, how many great musicians there are, how many wonderful creative people are doing things of great significance that I would never have discovered were it not for these things. So. Now, of course, Jeffrey releases his albums for sale and also on Spotify, and you'll find links to the pieces that were played today in the episode description. But Jeffrey, if my listeners want to get in touch with you or find more of your music, particularly your classical guitar and other ancient compositions, how can they do that and where can they find you? Well, um, the simplest thing is my music website, and it's called jeffreygoodmanmusic.com. And in it, it's kind of organized by CDs and publications and um, videos and so forth. So someone who has an interest, that's a good hub to go to to see if there's anything there that they want to select. Also, I do put a lot of materials for guitarists who, um, you know, like a PDF of a 19th century guitar method that's of historic significance. Not everyone knows that, that you can get those for free. So I put them there and people come from all over and they can download them and hopefully study them nicely. And with that, we'll say adieu. But please stick around to give your thanks to Jeff. Yeah, that, that essentially covers everything. So thank you very much for coming on and talking about um, ancient music or modern music as well. You're most welcome. For now, we will say goodbye to Jeff and round out the show with another wonderful piece that he composed, The Drums of Tutankhamun.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.